good morning. And thanks for being here at New Spring this morning. You know, we're starting a brand new series, and we're very excited about the subject material. As you can probably tell from, uh, from the cover tune and also from our intro video, this is some pretty heavy stuff. We're talking about those patterns, those cycles that are, that are things that we get caught up in in life that keep leaving us in places that we frankly just don't want to be. I mean, maybe you can think back to, say, like first or second grade. You know how you go on the field trip, maybe to the fire station or something like that. And, and you know, some adult there would say, now what do you want to be when you grow up, you know? And you'd hear all the normal answers. Well, I want to be an astronaut, you know, I want to be a, a, a helicopter pilot and all the really cool things we think about when we're, when we're kids, right? But, but I don't remember anybody in any of those circumstances saying, I'd like to be a disappointment. Can I be a disappointment? <laughs> I'd like to be a loser. I'd like to be a frustration to my family, right? These, these are things we don't hear. And, and probably to some extent, we all carry around in ourselves a picture of what it is that we would like to be. And it's not just about an occupation. It's, it's about a kind of person that, that we would like to be. And I think we, in many cases, we do a lot of things really well at getting in the path to be where, where it is that we want to be. And sometimes we make a mistake. We do something wrong. It takes us off track. But a lot of times we're able to course correct and get back where we want to be. But I think the most difficult and challenging thing sometimes in life is when we find ourselves in a pattern or a cycle of behaviors that are consistently taking us away from the ideal. They're, they're in the process of, of removing us from where we want to be. We keep finding ourselves in places we don't want to be. That's what this series is about. That's what we're going to be talking about. In this first message, we're going to be talking about the idea of breaking the cycle of, of neediness. And you probably would recognize this in some folks that you've met. If, if we're talking about, you know, florid neediness, we might be talking about someone who, um, you know, if, if, it, if it's a relationship thing, it's somebody who can't stay single very long, right? They break up with somebody and they suck into the next relationship immediately or, or something happens with their, with their job and they're just drawn to find, to find some other uh, job that's, that's going to be more fulfilling or, or perhaps uh, it has something to do with their purpose in life. This purpose didn't work out, so they get sucked to a new purpose in life. There's always that, that driv driven nature. You're, it's like you're driven by incompleteness. I've got to find something to complete me in. The lady that we're going to be talking about in our story this morning would be able to give you chapter and verse on that kind of lifestyle because she understands it quite well. And this is one of those stories where it's, it's a very beautiful story in the Bible, and we get a very um, brilliant uh, uh, narrative that we can, we can draw from, but some of the details aren't very, there's just a very short passage, so there's not a lot of details. So if you'll give me the, the liberty and the freedom, I'd like to maybe fill these details out a little bit, how it could have been. And um, The lady that, that we're talking about Today, I, I would like to think that maybe as a, as a little girl, maybe she was like most little girls. Maybe she dreamed of kind of a storybook wedding. Maybe she had little pretend wedding dresses she would wear. She would dress up and think about what the wedding day she was going to have might look like. And Prince Charming and the ceremony and the music and all the things that make a wedding day so special. And she always thought that this would be the gateway to her happily ever after. I'm going to get married to this guy and life is just going to be so wonderful. And, and so at the point... In her life, when she actually does get married for the first time, it's a joyous celebration. The family gathers around, and everyone is very excited for her. And, and, and she thinks, this is it. This is my happily ever after, starting right now. But after they're married for a little while, she starts to get the impression that perhaps she's not making him very happy. It's very concerning to her because you have to understand that the culture at the time was nothing like it is today. And... It was, a, it was a terribly unequal society. 
um, male-dominated society in which women pretty much barely had human status in the eyes of a lot of men and, and even in the government. It was, there was very much uh, no, a woman had basically no rights. A man had all the rights in the situation. And so it was a very scary position to be in if you were a woman who was just not happening to make your husband happy. There were some, some teachers running around that had said that according to their interpretation of the Old Testament of, of the Bible, according to their interpretation of Mosaic law, they said, um, we think that basically all you have to do if you want to divorce your wife is just give her a piece of paper, give her a parchment that says, I won't be married to you anymore. And, and really, you do need to have a you know, just cause. So, so those, those teachers were more than happy to give you several instances of what could be a just cause. For instance, if she burned dinner, that would be a just cause. Or if, if, if she happened to insult your mom, that was just cause. Or if perhaps, um, well, th this, one, this one will blow your mind. This is in the, in the writings of one of these early teachers. He said that if you were to find another woman more handsome than she, um, you could give her uh, a, a writing of divorce. But surely that wouldn't happen to me, she's thinking. Surely he wouldn't do that to me. I can, I can work this out. I can fix this. It's, it's not a permanent problem. I, I, I can make this go away. I can make him happy. But there comes that moment when he says it's over. There's no lawyers there to divvy the assets, no community property laws to protect her interests. Just the sound of a slamming door and a piece of paper that says, I don't love you anymore. And she goes home back to her family and they understand the kind of pain that she must be going through and they support her and they say, sweetheart, he was a jerk. The first marriage was a joke. It's okay. These things happen. It's all right. You're going to find somebody else. You're going to find somebody who really loves you for who you are. And it seems like that, uh, that happens pretty quickly. She, she finds another guy and, and pretty quickly she's thinking, this is going to be it. And her family's saying, you're, you go. You're, you're, you're going to be fine. And, and, and so she gets really excited about this as so she gets married to this guy. But not too long after, she's not making him happy. And there's another slamming door and a second piece of paper. Now she finds a, a third guy, guy number three. And the people she used to confide in are starting to kind of patronize her. She says, I found another guy. And they say, yeah, I bet you found another guy. She said, no, 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 you don't, you don't understand. He's different, sure, he's, he's different, sure. No, really, it, th this relationship is not like the other two. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Oh, never mind, you, you, you just don't understand. He gets me, he understands me, he knows who I am on the inside. When I'm around him, I can be myself. Until he kicks herself to the curb and she realizes he doesn't really get her. And the fourth and fifth husbands are hardly worth mentioning. They're so much like the first three. She says to herself, how did I get stuck in this cycle? How do I end up, it seems like the more that I feel rejected, the more I feel motivated to go seek something new out. For most of us, when we recognize neediness in our life, it's not just a, a predisposition. I think there's a lot of things in life that we have that are they're sort of predispositions, but let's recognize neediness is not a predisposition. Neediness is a cycle. Let's look at the steps that happened in this lady's life. The cycle went like this. I want to be approved. I found someone, but their approval is conditional. I'll do anything to win their approval. I did everything I could, but I was rejected. 
It must have been me. I should try again. I want to be approved. I found somebody, but their approval's conditional. I'll do anything I can to win their approval. I did everything I could, but it wasn't enough. It must have been me. I should go looking again. And the cycle spins around and around and around and around. She just needed somebody's approval. She needed somebody to accept her for who she was. But time after time, divorce was an indicator that that would never happen. So she goes looking again, guy number six. But this time, there's no hoopla, no pretense, no wedding. Just two people moving in together, waiting for the next shoe of disappointment to drop. Now, she's not afraid of getting married. Now, do you find this interesting? I wonder if you find this interesting as I do, that she doesn't marry the sixth guy. She's, she's living with him. Well, that seems a little odd, because she's certainly not an, intimidated by the idea of marriage, right? I mean, she's been down the aisle before. It's not like saying I do is a scary concept to her. She's done it. It's, it's been there, done that, and have multiple T-shirts. But at the end of the day, she decides not to marry this guy. Why? Well, this is so important. I honestly believe at this stage in her life, this woman has come to the point where she anticipates disappointment. She's come to expect it. Why get married when you know the thing is going to fall apart on you? Why get into this relationship when you know it's just not going to work out? Some of us have gotten to that point. We get to the point where we're just, we've seen so many disappointing things happen in our life that we just begin to anticipate that the next time we try something, we're gonna be disappointed. So we don't, we don't even go all out. Why go all out when you know you're gonna be disappointed? And so at this point, she goes subsurface. She knows what it's like to go out there in public. She sees the way they look at her. They know what she's done. Some of them know all five guys. Some of them know the sixth one. She hears the things that they whisper that little kids aren't supposed to hear. She sees the way they look down at her. It breaks her heart. She never intended for things to be this way. This was not what she had dreamed of. They don't know her on the inside. They don't know what it was that she really wanted. All they know is the failures. So why go out in public? Why, why live with that kind of rejection? So she just slips beneath the surface. I mean, there are a lot of things she realizes I don't even have to go out in public for, but there is one thing she cannot avoid. You recognize, of course, there's no faucets, no running water in these first century homes. So there's, there's a need to go be able to get water and bring it back to the house. So she goes to the well and, and draws water on a regular basis. But she recognizes that if she wants to avoid being seen, she can do this if she goes at the hottest part of the day, something we can appreciate given the current weather. She knows if she goes at noon, she's not going to run into people she knows. Now, here's the thing. She may run into people, but they're going to be people who are just traveling through, strangers that she won't have to worry about the fact that they know her history. I mean, if we were to, to bring her into modern, modern day times, we would say that she was going to Super Walmart at 1 o'clock in the morning. Oh, she, she tells her family that she's going then because the checkout lines are shorter. But the truth is, she knows the easiest way to avoid the public is to go to public places when the public aren't there. She walks down the aisles of Super Walmart, adding the things to her cart, and all of a sudden she bumps into a stranger, 
And the stranger says, excuse me, could you hand me that bottled water right there? Here's our text, John 4, starting in verse 5. Eventually he, he meaning Jesus, came to the Samaritan village of Sychar near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, please give me a drink. And he was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. Now keep in mind, she doesn't know who he is. She doesn't know she's talking to the Son of God. Really, truthfully, this is just another guy. And in so many cases, as, as, as is the case in so many situations in her life, she begins to let her past predict her future. Because she knows about guys. If anybody knows about guys, she knows about guys. And she knows, once, once he knows everything about her, there's no reason that he would ever ask her to get him a drink of water. So she begins to explain to him all the reasons that he should reject her. Sometimes we do this. We, we work through in our mind. When, when a situation comes up and it almost seems like a chance to be approved, we start to work through all the situations in our mind that I'm going to be rejected on this basis and I'm going to be rejected on this basis. And this is what she's doing. And she actually says it out loud to Jesus. This is her way of stopping the cycle, that cycle of rejection. Might as well just cut to the rejection. You know, fast forward past the previews, let's get to the real part here where you reject me. So she starts in John 4, 9 and says, the, the woman was surprised for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. And she said to Jesus, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. Two words that are going to be very important. Why are you asking me for a drink? Now this does make some sense. Because Samaritans and Jews, they just didn't have anything to do with one another. I mean, the rift was very deep. And like a lot of deep rifts, it wasn't just political, it was religious. Oh, the epithets, the slang terms, the dirty looks, the aggressive nature between these two people groups is just almost impossible to describe. And the thing was, Jews looked down on Samaritans and believed that they were an inferior race. It was that kind of prejudice. The Jews thought the Samaritans shouldn't even, shouldn't even be on the face of the earth because they were a substandard people. So it makes sense to this woman that if I'm sitting across from one of these people that thinks they're so much better than me, he shouldn't be asking me for a drink. Why are you even talking to me? Don't you understand your people don't talk to my people? When she was a kid, she heard her parents say, you can't play with those kids. Those are Jews. They think they're better than us. You can't, you can't spend time with that family. We're not like them. We're different. Don't listen to those words that they said. Those are, those are nasty words. Don't, don't pay attention to that. And if this guy re rejected her on the basis of her racial status, that would just seem normal. But if that weren't enough, she was a woman. And as I've already said, women in that culture didn't hold a very high place in the totem pole. In fact, Aristotle said, if you wanted to know what a woman's status was, it's somewhere in between a man and a slave. Plato said, you'll get a kick out of this, Plato said that if a man lived a particularly cowardly life, he would reincarnate as a woman. 
kind of a more somber thought, population control in ancient Rome consisted of abandoning little girls far more than it consisted of abandoning little boys. This was the kind of world she was born into. She was used to hearing people say things like, it doesn't really matter what you say in front of her, she's just a woman. You know, don't, don't worry about her, she's a woman. She's not important. She was, she was everything that would normally be rejected by a, a person like this. He's a man and a Jew. He should think he's way better than me. But the odd thing is, he's not walking away. Now, it's important that we say she has no control over these things. These are things that mark her status as a human being. She didn't get to pick that she was a Samaritan, and she sure didn't get to pick that she was a woman. At the end of the day, these are, these are just things that mark, mark her status as a human being. But she is used to the fact that people have rejected her over the, over the basis of things she didn't have any control over. But yet, he doesn't walk away. Look at what Jesus says in John 4, starting verse 10. Jesus replied, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. But sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, she said, and this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? And Jesus replied, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again, but those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, which by the way is our idea here of new spring, giving them eternal life. Now here's the deal. I think if we look at the text carefully, we'll see. I don't think at this point she really gets what it is he's talking about, but I think she's in. I mean, regardless, it sounds like minimum he's talking about the fact that she may not have to come back to this well again. Remember, she's coming and sweating to death by coming at noon so that she doesn't have to spend time seeing other people that she's concerned about. And he's actually saying perhaps she won't, you know, in, in her mind, maybe she's thinking, he's saying, I won't have to come back here. Wouldn't that be incredible? And, and regardless of what it is that he's saying, he's saying stuff about eternal life and I'm in. One way or the other, I'm in. Look what it is that she says. John 4, 15, please, sir, the woman said, give me this water, then I'll never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come here to get water. Go and get your husband, Jesus told her. In one moment, a flash of hope turns to the sting of reality. He doesn't know everything. He doesn't know everything. See, she was used to having people reject her on the basis of her status, and, and, and that was pretty common. But see, the thing is, the, some of the biggest rejection she'd experienced in her life had nothing to do with her status. It had to do with her past. It had to do with things that she did have control over, things that had happened to her that people thought, oh, if you, if you were a good enough person, you wouldn't have had that happen to you. If you were a good enough person, you wouldn't have gotten divorced the first time. Maybe if you'd made him happy. Maybe if you'd done things right. Maybe if you hadn't been a, 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 a pain for a wife. Maybe if, you'd, you know, may, maybe if you'd given a second thought, you wouldn't be living with a guy right now. You know that's wrong. You shouldn't be doing that. And, and people had judged her over and over again on the basis of her past. The word was out about her. Stories and the name calling. Once this guy really knows all about me, this conversation's gonna be over. So she comes up with the safest answer she can possibly come up with. John 4, 17, I don't, I don't have a husband, the woman replied. John 4, 17, Jesus said, you're right. You don't have a husband, for you have had five husbands, and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. He knows what she's done. How's that possible? No stranger should know that. 
No person she's never met should know how many men she's been married to. No, no man she's, she's not met should know that she's living with another man. What, who has he been talking to? What, what, is, what is his connection to her? This is a little weird. And then she, it, a light bulb comes on. She thinks, this guy must be a representative of God. But if he's a representative of God, then her past must be enough to, to rivet them apart. Look, Look, I think, in, in, in my mind, I think this is how she sees this verse going. If, if, she, if she were going to write this verse ahead of time, I think this is what she would see. Jesus said, you're right, you don't have a husband, for you have had five husbands, and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth, and Jesus walked away laughing. But oddly enough, oddly enough, he knows what she's done, and yet he's still there. He didn't walk away. It had to feel very weird for a woman who'd had so many people walk away on the basis of her past. So when he doesn't walk away, she says something, but as a, as a student of the Bible, I, I at first found this really odd, because I would think after he didn't reject her on the basis of her status, and he didn't reject her on the basis of her past, she would say, okay, I'm completely in, I, I'm so thankful that you haven't rejected me on these basis, but then she says something that for a minute doesn't even make sense. Verse 19, she, sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet, a representative of God, so tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship, while we Samaritans claim it's here at Mount Gerizim, where our ancestors worship? struggled with this one for a little while because I was wondering, what, why bring this up? Why go here? And then it dawned on me. There was one other way she was used to being rejected. Oh, she'd been rejected on her status. She'd been rejected on her past, but she always thought, if I ever were to have a confrontation with God, I think God would reject me on the basis of my failed religion, my failed attempts to get to God because she recognized that she was living in a world with people who thought they understood God, and the people she was with thought they understood God, but there was this real sense in her life, no matter what I do, I'm wrong, and I can't get to God. Everything I've tried fails. To her, religion wasn't about an order of service. It was about a protocol. It was about liturgy. It was about standing up at the right time and sitting down at the right time and going to the right place and doing things just right so that God would accept you. But she has a sneaking suspicion at this point that she's not good enough for God. But look what Jesus says in verse 21. Jesus replied, believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming, and indeed it's here now, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. For God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. What is God saying? God is saying it is not about the mountain. The mountain is irrelevant. It is not about the place. It's not about the order of service. It's not about when you stand up and when you sit down. It's not about the liturgy. It's not about the program. It's not about the bulletin. What it's about is a relationship with Jesus Christ. Look at what he says. We'll go back to verse 4 for a second. But the time is coming, indeed it's here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. You ever wonder who God is looking for? I mean, you know, when you go and apply for a job, it's always kind of nice to know. This person that's interviewing me, what are they looking for? What is it they're trying to find in someone? 
even when you're dating, it's always interesting to know what are they looking for, you know? Who is God looking for? Listen, God is not looking for somebody who knows all the right tricks, all the right hoops to jump through to make him happy. At the end of the day, what God is looking for is somebody who will worship him in spirit and in truth, somebody that says, my, my main goal is to have a relationship with Jesus Christ and to sync up and link up with him. That is the key element. That is the core of, of what being, being with God is all about, is the relationship. God is looking for people who recognize their need. Here's the thing, here's the thing. We talk about neediness, and I think sometimes we, we use it to talk about maybe like a clingy person or a person who um, is, always, is always draining other people of energy and relationships, but truth is we're all a little needy. See, we're born into this world with this infinite space on the inside. And as, as humans, we do our very, very best to find stuff to fill that empty space with. And we, we work very hard at that. But the problem is the space is infinite and everything else that we could fill it up with is consumable. So we, 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 we try to fill our infinite space with a relationship, but the relationship only has so many resources. Eventually we consume through those and then we're empty again. And sometimes we try to fill it with a job, but the job only has so many resources and we consume through it and then we're done. Or we try to, we try to, we try to fill it with a purpose, but the purpose itself is kind of nebulous and we, kind of we go through all those resources and then we're empty again. And we're always coming back to that spot where we're empty and we're saying, why don't I have something to fill this up? Why did God come and talk to this lady? Because he got that when somebody's really to the point where they are saying, I'm not gonna even try anymore to fill this up because I don't know how to fill it. God comes to that person and says, guess what? You have an infinite space, I'm an infinite God, and an infinite person fits perfectly in an infinite space. That's why God was looking for her. That's why God encountered her at the well. You see, she was somebody who really would get it. That's what I love about getting the opportunity to minister here at New Spring is I see people all the time who really get it. And I have it in my mind that God is looking for that kind of person, somebody who's willing to say, you know what, I've come to the point in my life where I recognize that anything other than God in my life is just flat out not gonna be enough. So she, at this point, wants to know who she's dealing with. Verse 25, the woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ, and when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. Can you imagine the moment? Just then his disciples came back. They were shocked to find him talking to a woman, but none of them had the nerve to ask, what do you want with her? Why are you talking to her? Good choice, right? The woman left her water jar beside the well and ran back to the village telling everyone, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? So the people came streaming from the village to see him. This is so good, you can't miss it. This is a woman who had gone subsurface. She didn't want to interact with people. Go into the well at a time when she knew she wouldn't run into anybody. What happens when she meets Jesus? She immediately reemerges. She leaves her water jar by the well and goes and talks to everybody and tells everybody, this is a guy who knows what I've done, and yet he didn't walk away. And the thing was, if you read on in that passage, you'll see that, that the village came out and heard what Jesus had to say. They even talked Jesus into staying longer than Jesus had intended because even they were amazed at the idea of somebody who knew what they had done but wouldn't walk away. And that is what is so incredible about our God is that he doesn't judge us on these bases. What can we learn from this? Well, I think when a person, when any of us, 
is isolated from our purpose because we've been rejected on the basis of our status or our past or our failed attempts to get to God, it, it really ought not surprise us that we're needy. It really ought not be a, a shock to us because we are needy. That cycle of neediness messes us up, but God comes seeking us out. We're used to being rejected, though. I mean, some of us in this room are used to being rejected based off of our status, those things that, that are markers of us in human life that we don't have control over. Some, some of you in this room have been told that because you're the race that you are, you shouldn't apply for a certain kind of job, or you shouldn't expect to get very far, you shouldn't expect to be able to do very much because that's a limiting factor, or perhaps you've been told that your IQ is too small, or perhaps you've been told you're too thin, or too large, or too short, or too high, and things that you don't have any control over, people have rejected you, and you've been, you've been told not even to try, and so now you think, perhaps if I were to encounter God, God would reject me on those same basis. God would think that I'm a substandard human being. Can I tell you what? God created you just as you are. You are the way God designed you to be, and he loves you that way. But sometimes we get so caught up in that, and we, we get used to that rejection, and we say, God, just go ahead. Just go ahead and tell me what everybody else is telling me. Go ahead and tell me I'm not good enough. But look, look what we see in the scriptures, Acts 10, 34 through 37. Then Peter replied, I see very clearly that God shows what? No favoritism. God shows no favoritism. Romans 1, 16, for I am not ashamed of this good news about Christ. It is the power of God at work saving who? Everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Gentile. That's the whole gamut of human, the, the, that, that is everybody in the population. Jews and Gentiles covers the whole shooting match. Romans 10, 10 through 13 says this, for it is by believing in your heart you're made right with God, and it's by confessing with your mouth that you are saved. As the scriptures tell us, anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. Jew and Gentile are the same in this respect. They all have the same Lord who gives generously to all who call on him. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Does that sound like a prejudiced God to you? We serve a God who leaves us on equal footing. It didn't matter that she was a Samaritan. It doesn't matter what race you are. It didn't matter that she was a woman. It doesn't matter what gender you are. It didn't matter what spot on the societal totem pole she held. It doesn't matter where you fit into society. And it doesn't matter how people label you. She had a label. It was disposable woman. The woman that you have for a while until you get tired, and then you reject her. This is who she had become. But see, God just doesn't look at labels. The Bible says the God we serve sees us on the inside. He's not a prejudiced God. So if, if God accepts me, and I must hurry, if God accepts me regardless of my status, what, Jonathan, what about my past? Jonathan, I've had an abortion, or Jonathan, I've slept around, or Jonathan, I've, I've done drugs, I've been involved in things that I just wouldn't even want to mention on this campus. Jonathan, here's the deal. If, you know, Jonathan, if, if I could meet you after this service and tell you what I've done, you would gasp and move backward and say, oh my word, I was so wrong. that God couldn't forgive you of that. Everybody else in the room can be forgiven, but not you. That's too bad just seems like God wouldn't be interested in me. And people who know my past, they treat me differently. Can I tell you that God didn't come to give this woman a history lesson? He came to give her a forecast. Look what it says in John 4, but those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh 
bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Eternal life, this is about our future. Look in John 3, 16, a verse that many of us memorized in the beginning of our, of our journey with Christ. For God loved the world so much that he gave his own, one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world not to judge the world. Judging is about the past. This is about the things that we have done. God didn't send his son into the world to judge the things that we've done, but to save the world through him. Here's the deal. God did not send his son into the world to rake us over the coals about our past. God sent his son into the world on a seek and rescue mission. He sent him into the world so that he could make a path available that we could get, we could have a relationship with Christ, with God. Verse 18, there is no judgment against anyone who believes in him, but anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged. God gave us his son so that our past could be put behind us. Look at 1 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 9. Don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols or commit adultery or male prostitutes or practice homosexuality or are thieves or greedy people or drunkards or abusive or cheat people, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. See, Jonathan, see, you just proved my point. You just proved my point. I just said... I'm not good enough for God. I'm too bad for God. He rejects me. I, I knew this. Why didn't you know this? Well, well, read on. Some of you were once like that. Some of you were. But then read on. But you were cleansed. You were made holy. You were made right with God by getting all your stuff together and, and being much better than you used to be, right? Did I read that wrong? You were, you were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. It's not because you get all your ducks lined in a row. It's not because you come to God with a perfect life and say, I've gotten it all straight. And not because you go back and somehow magically undo the past things that you've done that have disappointed you. It's because you come to God and you say, God, I'm an imperfect person, but you're a perfect God. And your son, he's paid for me, so I... I come to you and ask you to let me have a relationship with you, and he accepts you on the basis of his son, not on the basis of the fact that you fixed everything. You see, Jesus is the only person who can take your failures and turn them into past tense. He's the only person who can take the things that you've done and, and put them behind you. Look at what it says in Psalms 103, 11 and 12. For his unfailing love towards those who fear him is as great as the height of the heavens above the earth. He has removed our sins as far from us as the east is from west. Now, if you can figure out how you can get any farther apart than two uh, polar directions, please come and tell me after the service because I haven't figured it out yet. God doesn't just forgive us of the things we've done wrong. He separates us from them. Jonathan, what about rejection? I've, I've been rejected. I've been judged. Can, can we cut through the red tape here for a minute and just say that my judgment counts for very little? My judgment of you is not even worth a cup of coffee. The only judgment that really matters is God's judgment. And there are some behaviors that God has judged. But just because God has judged a behavior doesn't mean that he ever rejects you as a person. God created you in the image of God and he loves you. He does not reject you as a person. So it really doesn't matter if somebody else has judged you. Because at the end of the day, God still loves you. Jonathan, you, you talked to me about the first two, the status and the whole thing about the past, but what about, what about my failed attempts to get to God? Because see, like I, I went to this church one time and, and uh, I walked in there and, and 
I really wanted to try to do this church thing right. When I walked in, people looked at me like maybe I didn't dress right, and then they looked at my kids like probably I didn't dress them right, and then I didn't know really where to go. I didn't know where to take them, and then when I got into the service, I didn't know when to stand up, and I, you know, I sat down at the wrong time, and people looked at me weird, and they all knew I wasn't from there, and I didn't know how to hold the, the hymnal right, and I was, I was very out of place, and I walked away from there, and I said, I can never do this right. I'll never be able to do this church thing right. I'll never be able to fit into the, the mold of what this is all about. Jonathan, don't you think God would reject me because of that? Don't you think God rejects me because I've failed in my attempts to, to have these sorts of religious experiences? Well, let me tell you, I, I grew up, as you can imagine, in church. Um, and my guess is I could walk into most churches and I could probably do everything mostly right. I think I could probably figure out when to stand up and when to sit down and how to hold the hymnal. And I think I could probably do that with the best of them. But can I tell you something? It took just as much of Jesus Christ's blood on the cross to save me as it does anybody else in this room. The most religious person you have ever met in your entire life who knows how to do every single thing right and can win at Bible trivia nine times out of ten and can make, make you feel like you don't know anything about God. That person took just as much of God's blood on the cross than you did to be saved. And the thing about it is, God is looking for somebody who recognizes their need for him. There might be somebody in this room who's saying, Jonathan, I just, I heard everything you say, but I just don't think I can be good enough for God. I just walk away a lot with the feeling that I just I can't be good enough for God. Well, well let, me, let me help you this morning by telling you that there's not one of us in this room who is good enough for God. Here's what the Bible says in Romans 3.10. As the scriptures say, no one is righteous, not even one. Do you know, in order to be Good enough on your own to go to heaven, you have to be perfect. Did you know that? You gotta be perfect, can't, can't do a thing wrong. You have to be able to live up to God's character. And none of us have managed to do that. There's only one person who's ever been perfect, and that's Jesus Christ. But see, Jesus Christ loved you enough to die on the cross so that you don't have to be perfect. So it doesn't matter whether you, you think you can be good enough for God because at the end of the day, God has determined, before you were born, God had determined that he accepted you question is, do you accept him? John 5, 24 says this, I tell you the truth, those who listen to my message and believe in God who sent me have eternal life. They will never be condemned for their sins, but they have already passed from death into life. You say, Jonathan, I'm a, I'm a Christ follower. I'm talking about that empty space inside me and how God fills it. What, what, about, what about me? I'm, I'm a Christ follower. How do I keep from being needy? I, let me tell you what. This could revolutionize your life today when you walk out of here. It, that's the recognition. You already have this. You already have a God who has accepted everything about you. There may be behaviors that you end up working through, but at the end of the day, who you are as a person is something that God has, un, with, with, with no limits, God has accepted you. I can tell you, as a, as a follower of Christ, you can walk out these doors and not be tremendously concerned with other people's evaluation of you because God has evaluated you and said you are acceptable. But perhaps you would have come into this room this morning and you would say, I, I don't have a relationship with God and I, I have the big space, but I don't know what to do with it. Can we go back to our story for a second? We, when, when Jesus met the woman at the well, she said, if you knew who I was, you wouldn't be talking to me. And sometimes we feel that way 
with God. When we encounter God, we think if God really knew who I was on the inside, he wouldn't be talking to me. He wouldn't be offering me this. But look at what God said. God said, if you knew who you were talking to, you'd still ask. If you knew who you were talking to, somebody who knows you, who knows everything you've done, and is still offering this to you, you would still ask. And that's what he's asking this morning. If you haven't accepted Christ, he's, ask, he's telling you, I know who you are. And if you knew who I was, you would still ask me. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me for just a moment? Say, Jonathan, what, what stands in my way now? You said my, my past isn't standing in my way, and my status isn't standing in my way, and my religion's not standing in my way. What, what stands in the way of me having a relationship with God? Nothing. God has already done all the heavy lifting. Jesus Christ has paid for your sins. God just wants to know, will you accept the gift of his son? I'm going to pray a really brief prayer, and my words are just not important at all because I'm just another human being, but this is a prayer that says yes to God. It says, yes, I want to have a relationship with you, and I'm, I'm going to pray it in snippets, and if, if this, is the, this is where your heart is today, you can pray this silently in your heart to God, and he will save you. Here's, here's that prayer. Dear Lord Jesus, thank you that you love me. Thank you that you died for me. I know that I've done wrong things and I know I can't save myself. I ask you to forgive me and make me God's child. Thank you for saving me.